Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the show, I'm handing the microphone back to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, who's got Josh Portner, the CEO of Silka, on the show to have a wide-ranging conversation about the sport and high performance. Many of you may be familiar with the storied Silka brand. It's been around for close to 100 years, but Josh took over back in 2013 with a mission of merging the highest quality materials and craftsmanship with cutting-edge design and manufacturing. When you visit the Silka website, you notice a tagline, the pursuit of perfection, never settling, always improving. And I think that embodies how Josh approaches the sport. So I'm excited to pass you over to Randall to dig into this conversation. Before we jump in, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Logos Components. I've been itching to get back on a set of 650B wheels, and I've been waiting for my Logos Components wheels to arrive. They literally just arrived last night, and I'm super stoked but yet disappointed because I have to go away for the weekend and I won't be able to actually ride them until sometime next week. I chose the Atera 650B model. As you know, I'm sort of big on the big tires, big fun philosophy. So I've been eager on my unicorn, which I've been riding on a 700C set for a while now to get into the 650Bs again and see what uh, 650 by 50 combined with that RockShock fork is going to yield for me on the trails here in Marin. You guys may remember me sitting down with Randall talking about what makes a great gravel wheel set and everything that went into these Logos component wheels. I encourage you to go back to that conversation because whether or not the Logos wheel set is for you or not, I think Randall does an excellent job of teasing out all the various considerations you should be having when considering buying a gravel wheel set. It is no small expense when getting into a carbon wheel set, but the team at Logos has endeavored with their direct consumer model to make it as affordable as possible and make them as durable and high performing as anything out there on the market. I've ridden wheels designed by Randall for the last three years, so I'm super excited to see his latest vision come to fruition with these new wheels and I'll have them underneath me soon enough. I encourage you to check them out at logoscomponents.com. Randall is also an active member of the ridership community. So if you have questions for him, feel free to join us over there at the ridership and connect with other riders. I've seen people pinging that their wheels have arrived. So you can get some real, real people answering your questions about whether they're enjoying the wheel set, how they perform, et cetera. And I'll have more on this in future editions. At this point, I'm going to hand the microphone over to Randall, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Josh. Josh Portner, thank you for joining us on the podcast. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Some deep bike nerdery is probably about to ensue. So uh, let's dive <laughs> let's hope. dive right into it. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Always, yeah. always up for some deep bike nerdery. I like that. So a number of our listeners will already know who you are, but just give folks a high level uh, summary of what you do now. Oh gosh. So I own Silka, um, or I own 
Aeromind, which uh, owns the Silka brand and trademark um, and and all that that entails. And then we also have a, uh, we own Marginal Gains, which is a podcast and a YouTube channel. And um, yeah, our goal is to, Aeromind works with a lot of pro riders, pro teams, world tour teams. Um, you know, we do everything, <clears throat> excuse me, we do everything from, you know, performance consulting, uh, modeling, uh, you know, setting up our record attempts for people or, or helping them design our record attempts. Um, you know, we do tire pressure work with pro teams. We do equipment choices for teams. We think some of the most interesting stuff we do uh, is <laughs> around where like uh, teams or national federations don't trust the equipment they're getting from somebody. And they'll come to us and say, you know, the, you know, bike brand X says that this does this and our riders don't think so. Can you tell us what's true? And we'll find a way to make that happen. So we, we've had some pretty interesting ones of those with, uh, particularly around the Olympics with the national federations, you know, no, nobody wants to have another Under Armour speed skating suit uh, situation, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Where all the, all the athletes think something is true and therefore it becomes true and, and nobody knows. And so, um, you know, so we do a lot of that. Aeromind does that essentially. And so that's a lot of the performance work I was doing in my old world where I was technical director at Zip for almost 15 years. Um, and, and then Silka is the product arm of the company. Uh, that's probably how you know, most people know us, you know, we make pumps and tools and, and, but we also make a lot of crazy things that people look at me and go, oh, where the hell did that come from? Well, that probably came from some project or another. We did it in the Aeromind side of the business. Um, mm -hmm. So that's how we've gotten into sealants and lubricants and 3D printing and and all sorts of other craziness, right? That's sort of how the one flows into the other. And then you know, Marginal Gains is a podcast and, and YouTube channel where we talk about it all. And and we, we typically with a, a team or a company have like a two-year secrecy period on a technology. And then after that, we can do something with it and, and talk about it and tell the story. So you know, it's always, it's always fun to go through those periods. We're like, oh, thank God we can talk about that now. Because, <laughs> you know, we're talking about it internally all the time. And, and it's like, oh, can we put that in the podcast? I don't know. So, so that, <laughs> that's what I do now. We, I, I play with bikes, basically. <laughs> very, very cool. And um, when you talk about the consulting work you do, is this kind of full stack performance consulting? Is it very aero focused? Is it all technical sides, including say like bearing drag or, or things like this? Is it um, obviously positioning falls into aero nutrition? Like where, where do you, Ooh, where yeah. does your I, domain no start yeah, and I, end? I, okay. I draw the line at, at physiology. You know, there's a whole, there, there are people who are, are like my equivalent in that world. And, and my God, I could never even dream to, you know, clean their shoes. So um, no, you, you need someone to talk physiology, you know, and I'll, I'll pull my phone out. We'll call Alan Lim or somebody, you know, yeah. we, we have a bunch of contacts, but, uh, you know, Alan's one of my favorite go-tos for things like that. And like, Oh dude, I'm in over my head. Help. <laughs> you know, he, he's, um, he's actually been on the pod before, but Craig interviewed okay. him. So I might bring him on in the future to do oh, yeah, you know, yeah. my, he's, my more kind of nerdy type of interview. Alan's yeah, great. No, he's I love he's Alan. a lovely guy. He's a lovely guy. And, and I just love, I mean, he, you know, like I find myself, pretty quickly sometimes getting into places where people's eyes just glaze over with like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And, you know, I love that Alan can do that to me in about 30 seconds. You know, we're talking about the stuff that he does. You're like, Oh, Whoa, shit, way over my head. Way, I, I didn't even recognize the last four words that you used in that sentence. <laughs> 
And uh, so it's, it's awesome to be able to be surrounded by people with that. But no, you know, we, the stuff that they come to us for, I mean, you know, when I left Zip and started Silk, of course, everybody and their brother, you know, came and said, oh, design us a wheel. I'm like, well, like, I can't do that for a couple of years, but also I'm kind of just done with that. You know, like I've lived that life. I, you know, it, it was fun, but, you know, we, we continually updated wheels for 15 years, but it, it really is kind of like doing the same thing over and over again, you know, and, and so it just wasn't fun for me. So, you know, they'll come and say, um, you know, help us design this cockpit or we, we do a lot of with our, our in-house uh, 3D titanium printing. We do a lot of custom cockpits for uh, teams, riders, things like that, you know, where we laser scan the rider, get the position, lock that down in the wind tunnel, design the part, 3D print it, um, you know, stuff like that. that. That's really exciting. We we get a lot of, you know, what, um, you know, help us optimize for this time trial at the tour or the Olympics or whatever, where, you know, what tires should we run? And we can, we have systems and tools and, and spreadsheets and a million other things that we can, um, yeah, help, help them determine. And then a lot of times we, you know, we get companies coming to us um, really just wanting to know, like, you know, if, like, which of their sponsor products should they use and when should they go off sponsor? You know, you'll see that a lot at like the tour where, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, like they, they ride the sponsor correct product, you know, 98% of the time, and then they're going to sneak it in here or there when it's really critical. So, you know, what, what are those really critical points? And then, you know, if, if they're going to risk getting in trouble or outright get in trouble, like it needs to be worth it. Right. And so they might come to us with like, okay, you know, we need a, I need a time trial tire for this rider for this day, you know, what should we do? And, and we'll help them with that. But yeah, you know, if you, if you were a, a brand uh, or a world tour team or a pro triathlete that wanted to go to the wind tunnel, you know, you might pay us to come along. Um, a lot of what I do too is kind of fun is just act as like a fly on the wall in these team to sponsor interactions. You know, I think it was probably at half a dozen wind tunnel tests last year where I really had pretty much nothing to contribute other than being the neutral third party in the room. Um, <laughs> you know, so that everybody was comfortable, that everybody was comfortable. <laughs> well, I would so. imagine there's a mix of the, uh, the political, if you're talking about, you know, what should we be using our own sponsors gear versus slipping something else in all the way to um, balancing the competing goals of say like comfort and pure power output on the bike versus aerodynamics. Um, if you're talking about a time trial position. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and I think even down to, you know, and, and I think as much as we love to talk science and testing and, and try to be as scientific as possible, I mean, this stuff is really, it's emotionally hard. It's politically hard. It's, you know, companies will bring new equipment in. They're with their engineers. I mean, those guys and girls want that stuff to work so bad. And, you know, sometimes you just see things coming out where, oh, yeah, that's clearly faster. And you're like, well, actually, the way I would interpret that is it's probably about the same. Um, or, mm -hmm. you know, let's let's rerun that test. Or, um, you know, it's always, I don't know, it, it they they like people like to get themselves in these loops where, you know, oh, we did this and it's ten seconds faster and it's that and it, I feel like back in the you know I, when I was with Zip we did this a lot during the Lance Armstrong era and he was writing our disc and and we were coming in as consultants for the first probably five tours or whatever and um, you know every wind tunnel test you'd get to the end and they would have this chart that's like we just made him ninety seconds faster and it's like look guys that 
there is no 90 seconds faster. I mean, you, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, like that is not going to happen. You know, you, you just did a whole bunch of stuff that's not sustainable, that he can't hold his head like that. Mm-hmm. That helmet mm-hmm. tail is going to come off the back. You, you know, I mean, because people do things like, oh, oh, the helmet tail moved, rerun. <laughs> you're like, yep. guys, when you're riding in the real world, like the tail's going to move. Like you don't, you, you know, pe- people like to, they select data um, without even realizing they're selecting data. And so, you know, it is, it's just good always to have a third party in the room. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like funny story, you know, back to, you know, my zip days, how Firecrest came about, you know, Firecrest was literally the name of the prototype that, that kind of blew all of our minds. And the reason the prototypes had weird bird names was that we had to double blind them across engineers because you just didn't want anybody kind of, you know, having an effect on their product. Right. I mean, we all, you know, we all fall in love with our children. Right. And and in this world, mm-hmm. like you, you can't love your children um, and you have to be willing to kill them when they're not good. And, um, you know, we would do this double blind thing where we would like assign them all a number and then we would assign bird name, these bird names, a number, and then we would randomize it and then they would get all put up. And then nobody really knew whose idea was what, when you were in the tunnel, um, that's necessary, right? Cause you're, you, you know, you can be your own worst enemy at that stuff. I think we've, you know, we've all been guilty of that a time or two in our lives, but, uh, you see it all the time, particularly in these performance, um, improvement coaching type things where, you know, people just want to will something into existence, even when it's not there. Yeah. Well, and I could see, um, you know, the marketing oftentimes has it much more, uh, presented much more like, a, you know, this is just, it's physics. It's more, it's more exact. It's more, um, it's more controlled. And um, there are competing variables, particularly when you have, you know, a monkey in the middle, you have to, this, this, you know, this animal needs to be comfortable. This animal needs to be fueled. This animal needs to be able yep. to control this machine through a varied environment. And that varied environment may be varying in real time if weather changes or things like this. Um, and so there's just all these competing interests. And so when you see, you know, I often laugh at like, you add up all the different aero benefits that, you know, different companies claim for components and you should be doing, <laughs> right, right. you know, you might you be uh, looking at um, uh, relativistic effects potentially at some of the speeds you'd be able to achieve. Uh Jens are just like, yeah. How, yeah. how many watts can be saved? Oh, uh, totally. Being, being a little bit facetious there. Yeah, no, no, it's totally true. I mean, and I still have this photo somewhere. I think I even showed it a couple of years ago on social media, but this, this really f- great photo that I love that ended up um, on the wall at the Texas A&M wind tunnel, but it's me with next to Lance Armstrong um, in the, what became the Nike Swift spin suit um, that had been flown down there from, you know, Seattle. And it's, uh, oh God, the guy in, from his book, College or whatever he calls him, and then a guy from Nike. And so it's the four of us and I'm kind of standing there like doing, you know, like pointing at something on his back and it, like a college student took it for the school newspaper and then they had him autograph it and it ended up on the wall. And so it was like, oh, that's me. You know, it's kind of funny, but, but the real story there was that suit, you know, they were paying like 3000 bucks a meter for the suit. They've been putting it on a mannequin in the tunnel. I mean, it was going to save three minutes per 40K. And you're just sitting there going, guys, like, I, I mean, just quick doing the math, like three minutes for Lance Armstrong, you know, the, the guy's already, that's not possible. And, and of course we get it, we put it on him, um, the whole thing, you know, it, it's, it, it's cool. It's fancy. It was very red and it does nothing. I mean, it literally, we were, and the Nike people are there and they're like, well, that's not possible. 
it, it can't do nothing. Like, well, let's run it again. Okay, now get him out of it. Put him in the normal suit. Run that one. You're like, it it just doesn't do anything. And and they just kept going. Well, we'll run it again. We'll do this. Let's let's close pin it up. Let's tighten it. Let's do, you know. I mean, I bet we we lost two hours trying to make that <laughs> stupid thing look like it would do anything. You know. And it, again, it, it's it's just people being people, and we've all done it. But I hear but, like uh, something of stages of stages of grief. Like you have right. your baby and right. like first it's denial and then, <laughs> yeah, then yes. you have bargaining. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, put so much into this. Yeah, that's exactly, that is exactly what it is. And, and you know, the, the crazy reality with that one was, you know, three months later at the tour, they launched it anyway and they said it saved three minutes and he, you know, mm -hmm. and we, we just, you know, I just had to laugh. I mean, I remember, you know, him, you know, winning whatever, one of the time trials by like a minute and like, oh, no. So Nike's essentially saying he would have lost that time trial by two minutes had it not been, had he not been wearing that suit. Come on, guys. Yeah. Um, well, and know, I think that that that's, maybe that's, um, you know, headline number one from this interview is don't believe everything you read, especially if it's coming from a party who has a financial interest in it. <laughs> that is true. That is true. No. I, I, uh, I tell you, don't, don't even believe yourself. Right. I mean, truly, like you, you are a bad, um, a bad predictor of things and, and you're a bad feeler of things and nobody wants to admit that. Um, but it's just true. You know, that's, I've been preaching that gospel for, for years, but you know, I mean, 90, I, I would say 90% of the things you think that you feel when you're on your bike, total, total crap. Um, and, and we know that cause we, we've done blind testing with riders. I mean, like, unbelievable world-class riders. And if you blind them to what they're actually riding, they can't tell you almost anything. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, all that well, the perception but the stories, goes away. The stories we tell ourselves are powerful. There is a strong placebo oh, effect. For sure. Uh, for sure. But it has to be acknowledged that that is the placebo. And if you actually had those beliefs about things that had genuine benefits, you would get both. You would get right. the actual benefits. Oh, yeah. the the most powerful thing in the world is a placebo that actually works, right? Yeah. <laughs> where you get, it's like a, it's a double whammy benefit. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's where, you know, I mean, in a nutshell, that's a lot of what, you know, I've made my career doing, right. Just trying to help, help sway people towards the, the, the placebos that, that actually do have a, a, a benefit for them. So this has the conversation going in a slightly different direction than I was anticipating, which I'm really enjoying. So I've been, I've been diving into this lecture series from this guy, Robert Sapolsky at Stanford. It's on um, the uh, uh, behavioral biology. And it's mm. looking at all the different ways in which studies go wrong. And so there's okay. like, you yeah. know, beliefs about something uh, for a long period of time, you know, eminent people in the field uh, promulgate these, you know, these ideas. And then it's shown that, you know, the study was, was not uh, taken, uh, done properly or what have you. And so I'm curious, let's dive more into things that go wrong in the study of aerodynamics and um, maybe kind of the edge of say human performance where it interfaces with aerodynamics. Hmm. Oh, so, I mean, a, a good, I would say career defining for me example of that was, um, you know, we, from like 2009 to 2012, we were really all in on developing, uh, CFD for the, for bicycle wheels. And it, it just wasn't working right. Everybody was talking about it and showing papers. And, but I mean, it just, the reality was like the CFD just never looked like the wind tunnel. The curve shapes were different. The data was, we're, we're talking I mean, it wasn't mid mid nineties, right? Oh no, mid, mid, late two thousands. Yeah. Like mid, 2000, late two thousands. Okay. Yeah. 
And you're not um, using, you're having to develop something ground up or you're having to uh, no, adapt something just, from Dassault or, or one of these bigger vendors? Yes. Yeah, so th I think the, the question at the time was, you know, how do you, how do you really properly model the spinning wheel in, in flow that's also translating, right? And you look at, you know, all the CFD stuff with aircraft, um, you know, there's no rotational flow. You know, and then yep. you look at there's special models that people have built to look at like um, turbine, jet turbine engine combustion mm -hmm. or whatever. But those are incredibly unique. And they're also, you know, there's rotate flow rotating, but in a different axis. And yeah, it's the, the it's F1 the guys. Perpendicular axis. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so and then you've got the F1 guys who weren't really modeling. Um, they were modeling the rotation of the wheels, but they were doing it by modeling a rotational component at the surface of the tire. So you were, you weren't essentially like spinning the wheel. You were just saying, oh, there's a induced rotation ab about this surface, um, which has been in the, the solvers forever. Oh, so in, interesting. It, this is taught because the, those wheels are traveling so quickly, especially the top of the wheel. If you're doing 200 miles an hour, the top of the tire is traveling at 400. And so you're having significant turbulence at that interface. Right. Well, exactly. and you, you have like Magnus effect, right? You're actually getting pressure differential top to bottom, um, you know, from the, mm -hmm. the direction of the wheel spinning. And so, you know, we, we could do stuff like that pretty accurately, right? You could, you know, you could look at the, you know, a, a rotating baseball and, and predict the direction it's going to curve. I mean, things like that were possible, but you know, every single, and you know, my God, I used to get, I still do occasionally, but I, I used to probably get, 20 PhD papers a year from kids all over the world. Um, you know, oh, what do you think of my paper on, you know, CFD of bicycle wheel? And we're like, oh, it's beautiful pictures, but your data's crap. Um, and it just wasn't <laughs> figured out. And and in 2009, I, I met a guy, Matt uh, Godo, who's a triathlete, but he also worked for a company called FieldView, and they had built all of the CFD automation for uh, Red Bull F1 um, and probably half the F1 grid, but his his big account was Red Bull. Um, and he, I met him at Interbike and he had a paper that he was working on. He said, I think, I think I might've figured this out, but I really need to be able to like, like build a wind tunnel in the computer and then look at it so we can directly compare them back and forth. And, and so we, we did that and we published a paper at the AIAA, which was at MIT that year. And it went over really well and people liked it. And we published another paper the next year, um, at, at the AIAA conference and that went well. And then we got this big grant, like an $80,000 grant from Intel um, to really tackle this problem because oh. the the head technologist at Intel at the time was a guy, uh, Bill Fireisen, one, one of the coolest guys I ever met. Um, you know, the kind of guy who, whose resume just has like a five-year period that says like Los Alamos. You're like, <laughs> okay, you're cool, you know? Right? Yeah, yeah, not, um, not allowed to talk <laughs> about it. What do you do? Yes. Uh, Yes. yes. <laughs> but, uh, but he was a cyclist and he was some senior, somebody at Intel and, and, um, and they, they gave us this money and we, we, we really went hard at this and we ended up developing, uh, essentially all of the little nuanced details. Uh, we did it in star CCM. We post-processed it in field view. I think we processed it on like a thousand cores, which for 2010 was, you know, a lot, right? Um, and these are these are um, CPUs and not GPUs for that era, right? A lot of this stuff of that is era, GPUs yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah, I remember we. Yeah, I mean that was the beginning of uh, that was the beginning of the cloud. It was pretty cool. Like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, people were still traveling. I remember at one point in that process, there was discussion that like we might have to travel 
um, to, oh God, what is it? Uh, the Ill university over there in Illinois had a huge, had like a 1200 core machine. And they're like, okay, we, we might have to go there and, and buy, you know, two days of time. And then as that was happening, cloud kind of the beginnings of cloud was there. And remember we, we met a guy who had a cloud thing and they had just been bought by Dell and uh, we were at a conference and he's like, Oh no, you know, with our, th our thing, God, what was that called? Uh, but uh, with our thing, you, you can just do it like up in the ether. We're like, Whoa, <laughs> you never heard of that yeah. before. Um, it was just exciting times. And, and, uh, but, but we, you know, had this great team, we pulled it together. I mean, that's really where Firecrest came from, right? It was, it was largely designed using, um, hundreds of iterations of shapes predicted to be fast, uh, using the CFD. And, and ultimately we won, we, we became like, I think the first non university and non-governmental group to ever win a, uh, uh, innovation excellence award from the supercomputing society. So it was pretty cool. No, Salt Lake City is like this huge supercomputing conference and, you know, it's like DARPA this and university of that. And it was like these four guys from this bike brand, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was a pretty cool experience, but, but in that, so uh, that's like a huge tangent. In no, that. no, this is, this is great. And, and just to take a, a stop for a second, CFD, computational fluid dynamics, software yes. that is used to model complex multivariate systems where there's second order effects and, you know, fluids and, and things like this. So anyone who's yeah. not, who's not with us on that, like complicated software yeah, and, for complicated in, system. Models. In your ideal world, it's like a wind tunnel on your laptop. Right. In the, yeah. in the George Jetson's version of things, it, it's the wind tunnel on the laptop. In, in the reality of things, it's kind of more like, eh, it's about as good as guessing most of the time. But, but, but sometimes it's really good at finding certain really specific things. So I won't, uh, I, I won't knock it too hard. But, well, but I, the thing I want to dive in a little so, bit here. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, so let me finish. The, the yeah. thing that we discovered in this process that was super cool. Um, was that once we had all of these transients, we were solving for all these transients. Um, and we really started looking at not just like the, you know, the, the side force or the yaw force, or you, you think of, um, you know, the whole thing with like wheels and handling, right? This all came out of this project because you could, you could predict the steering torque on the wheel, which, you know, none of the balances being used to test wheels at the time even had torque sensing, right? You had drag, side force, and lift, but none of them had the rotational components in there. And so that for us at first was like, oh shit, we've never thought about torque because we weren't measuring it, right? It's sort of one of those, yeah. like, you've biased yeah, yeah. your study all along. But then the big one was looking at the predicted um, data and there were all of these uh, harmonic effects. And mm -hmm. we kind of looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, every wind tunnel you've ever been in, right? The first thing everybody discusses is, you know, what's the, what's the, the time across which you're taking the data and at what frequency, and then you're averaging that data, right? Cause we're all after a data point and you could look at the tunnel data and the CFD data. And when you pulled them out of their point form into their wave form, essentially you could see the harmonics kind of lined up, the frequencies match and went, oh shit, we've been averaging out a really important piece of data for 30 years, you know, this harmonic thing is big. Like what's your, your standard so it's, it's operating on a, it's operating on a frequency that is smaller than the sample rate or how is no, it? That essentially, essentially we were just idiots and we were just, we were just time averaging the, all of that out. 
right? I mean, it's, you know, you, oh, if you wow. went to okay. any wind tunnel you, you went to in the world, you'd be like, oh, well, we'll take, we, here we take data for 30 seconds at, you know, whatever, 100 hertz, 60 hertz, 120 or whatever it is. And then we'll, we'll take an average. Oh, okay. That, that's fine. But Got what it. you're averaging out in there is real, um, uh, like amplitude changes, uh, largely due to vortex shedding is, as it turns out mm -hmm. with bicycle wheels, but a lot of yeah. that high frequency handling stuff, particularly as wheels get deeper, um, oh God. Sorry, I'm, in, uh, I, I'm in our studio, which is off of our kitchen and somebody's lunchbox just, uh, just leapt off of the top of the refrigerator. Um, yeah, sometimes I'll have a niece or nephew come in screaming. So no worries. Yeah. So, but, uh, but no, we, we realized there, there was a, a uh, about a factor of five difference in amplitude between wheels in terms of that, those oscillating effects, right? Which typically it's just, it's generally vortex shedding and the CFD can predict that really well, right? Where your little pressure builds up, sheds off, sets off a counter rotation that sheds off. Um, but as a, as a cyclist, you, you feel that as the wheel, you know, kind of oscillating left to right. Um, and we, and let's, we and just let's, average let's that out for 20 back. years, you know? <laughs> yeah, so you're just yeah. taking the the lump, you know, 30 seconds averaged out data and saying, okay, it gives you this amount of benefit. And you're not seeing those. Um, I mean, really, what we're talking about is, uh, you know, instabilities that may amplify or yeah. you know, otherwise result in, in control issues on the bike. And I want to take a moment to just like define some terms, uh, because not, you know, many of our listeners are not overly technical. Um but uh, I think some of these concepts are easy enough to get your head around. Like, so you know, describe at a, a very high level, you're talking about vortices. So, you know, maybe describe laminar flow and flow attachments and vortices sheddings. How, how does this, how does this, uh, how can you understand this without a, a technical background? Oh, those are awesome questions. Okay. So laminar, laminar flow is kind of what you, what the, the world wants you to think of in the wind tunnel. You see the wind tunnel picture and they've got like the, the 10 lines of smoke and they're all kind of flowing together cleanly and beautifully. That's, that's meant to, to evoke laminar flow, right? That if you were yeah. to drop a, a, a smoke or a particle in there, that they would all flow in laminar, you know, like sheets of paper. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so, so smooth that's a very flow going in a straight yeah, very line. controlled, predictable. Yeah, flow and it and it follows the contours of the thing that it's flowing against. Um, so, so kind of like water be, flowing down a river, sort of thing. It's not perfectly laminar, but it's all going roughly in the same direction. And there's yeah, not a lot of water in a pipe, disturbance. You know, would in would a pipe, be yeah, better example. Presumably, pretty laminar, right? And then you start to yeah. add stuff. You know, you, water in the river. Now you're you're you know you've got a rock, and now all of a sudden there's a disturbance, and it starts to yeah. swirl. Um, and yep. so you, you get into, you know, m more complicated types of flow. I, I think the, the big ones, you know, for us to think about are, you know, most, so most drag that we deal with comes from, um, uh, pressure related things. So you either have like the, the high pressure on the front of the rider, right? The wind that you're pushing yep. into this, when you stick your hand out the car window, right? The, mm -hmm. the air you feel hitting your hand, you know, that's. Uh, that's a pressure drag uh, in the positive direction. And then you have the a flow vacuum in the back. Yeah. The flow will detach off of the object and that'll create a vacuum behind. And so that's a suction drag. Um, mm -hmm. And then when you have something like vortex shedding, it's when uh, the, the best, 
description I ever have for vortex jetting is if you've ever driven an old car with uh, like the metal antenna on the hood, you know, at some speed on the highway, that antenna starts vibrating, oscillating sideways, which is mm -hmm. like the last thing on earth you think it would do, right? Like your brain's like, well, it should just keep bending backwards with speed. Mm -hmm. Why is it going sideways? Well, that's that you get this thing where you have a little, uh, a little curl of flow will kind of detach more on one side than the other. And that creates a side mm -hmm. force. But in doing so, the suction that that has now left behind will pull a similar vortex from the opposite side. Mm -hmm. And that creates an mm -hmm. opposite side force. And so you get, so you get these, an oscillation, you get these oscillations and uh, you know, that's, it's huge in architecture and um, mm -hmm. it, it's why you see so many of these oh, yeah. super tall buildings are, kind of have pyramid shapes or might have some sort of like feature that spirals down them to, to kind of break that up. Um, I, I live in Boston. We actually have um, a skyscraper here that was flexing so much. The windows were popping out. This is, you know, decades oh, ago and yeah, you know, yeah. it's still, you know, it, it, they have this like funnel of air that's going through there and just the nature of the shape of it and how air gets funneled in, it was causing enough torsion to, um, you know, cause window debonding. Um, so yeah, yeah. that's crazy. Uh, so then, you know, think applying this to the bike and particularly a wheel, um, you know, this is the biggest effect is, is presumably your front wheel where you're having this oscillation, this shift in pressure from one side to the other at a very high, high level, um, that's yeah. causing instability. It's making it so that you may lose control of the bike. It's not predictable. Yeah, correct. Correct. And, yeah. and the, the other thing we learned through CFD that it was doing, which is not obvious until you think about it, but so you think of the, so you might have say that the trailing edge of the front half of the rim, you're, you set up a little vortex shedding situation. Mm -hmm. um, and so you've got a little side force, but it's kind of at the, the trailing edge of the rim there, right? So it's got a little bit of leverage on your steering. But the other thing that's happening is that alternating attachment and detachment of flow, um, changing the side force, but your side force at an angle. So there's a lift component, right? Which is mm -hmm. how the drag is being reduced. And as that happens, what, what's also now changing is what we call like the center of pressure. And the center mm -hmm. of pressure would be, you think of like the wheel from the side, like, like the sum, the aggregate of all the, the arrow forces on that has a center point about which it's balanced. It's kind of like a center of mass. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it'd be center of pressure. Well, that center of pressure, when you have that shedding happening somewhere, it, that's now moving forwards and backwards. And, and very rapidly when, as well. It, potentially, some, yeah, right? rather rapidly. I mean, and, and yeah. when you really look, look in on it, it, the frequency actually can be quite close to, um, the uh, speed wobble frequency, right. Which is somewhere in that like three to four Hertz range. Uh, which also happens to be really close to the frequency of human uh, shivering, which is kind of cool. That's why you're more likely to, to speed wobble when you're really cold. Um, and not everyone will, just have, push will have experienced speed yeah. wobble, but if, you know, if this is basically your, you, you hit a certain resonant frequency of, of the frame based on the frame's geometry, uh, the head tube angle, the, the, what are the factors that go into that? Uh, it's top tube stiffness is big. And so, yeah, and yeah. it's actually this speed wobble is interesting. It's not, it starts as a residency issue, but it's really a, it's a hop bifurcation and, um, a hop and so bifurcation. You, okay. And so, yeah. And so what you have in a hop, uh, bifurcation is you essentially have two, st two stabilities, um, would be the best way to think of it. And you are jumping from the one to the other. And so, 
like mm. right up until so the that system line, wants to be in one state or the other, but not in the middle. And there's no middle, right? And and yeah. what's, what's so cool, like like early in um, uh, early in COVID, you know, we were all talking about this. You know, what is it? The R not value, the you know, like if it's above or below one. And when you you line that out, that R not when R not crosses one, it's a hop bifurcation that looks just like the speed wobble bifurcation. I mean, the graph. It's amazing how like cool those things you know mathematically you're like oh yeah that's exactly the same as this it's just here it's in a you know you get the exact same graph if you're looking at um a wing flutter in an aircraft uh in the wing tunnel mm -hmm. similar bifurcation problem but yeah so you, you you have essentially two states and the system can get tripped from one into the other and in the one the bike is stable and wants to go straight and in the other it wants to oscillate because each oscillation mm -hmm. is setting up the the counter oscillation um, and so like it, it's, you know, in resonance, it's more of like a runaway, you know, you think of yep. like the, tr how that's traditionally yeah, done. It, like it, it amplifies. Forcing, yeah. It, it just keeps yeah. growing and growing and growing. Um, and in this one, it just, it, it, it's not growing and growing, but it just trips you into the spot where like, it's really bad. Um, mm -hmm. and it will just shake the crap out of you at the front end. And, um, and in fact, yeah, motorcycles, high performance motorcycles will sometimes have a steering damper for this very reason. Um, exactly. because you'll, yeah, you'll get these speed wobbles. And so the damper is essentially making it so there's some exponentially increasing resistance. Um, I, I know, you know, this, I'm explaining it for our, yeah, our audience, yeah, yeah. just in, you know, because again, I want to keep bringing it back down to earth, but you know, having just like your, your suspension, you don't just have a, a, a just a spring, you have some sort of damping circuit. So it doesn't feel like a pogo stick, um, which is a related effect. Um, but, uh. Very cool. And are not for our listeners as well. <laughs> Funny, I hadn't thought about that. I haven't thought about that in like two years as we were talking. I'm like, oh, I remember now that was, uh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, uh, but what are not was the, um, oh shit, it was the, the contagion ratio or whatever, like how, how many people each person would transmit to. Mm -hmm. And so if it's, it, which makes sense, right? If every person's going to transmit it to 1.1, it grows. If you're going to transmit it to 0.8, it, it dies. Um, so the analogy uh, here is that, that the increasing amplitude of that, you know, those pressure differentials, sending it to the, the system to one state or the other and causing that increasing oscillation. Is that a exactly. correct characterization? Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. Like you, you can take it right up to a line, um, and you don't have a problem. And then as soon as you cross the line, you're in a different state. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's where I think, you know, speed wobble for those of you who've experienced it or chased, tried chasing it on a bicycle, um, you can solve it sometimes with like the stupidest stuff. Um, you know, one of the, the common ones is to just put a little bit of like, um, like, like a heavier bar tape or a little bit of lead weight in like your, um, uh, your end plugs. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You can oftentimes change it with a uh, tire pressure or a different tire. Cause you can add just enough damping at the contact patch, um, that it just pushes it up high, you know, if, because typically what people find is like, oh, it's I'm totally fine. Then I hit, you know, 38.5 miles an hour and all hell breaks loose. Well, mm -hmm. you change the mass at the top of the system a little bit. And maybe you've now pushed that point out to 45 miles an hour. But if you mm -hmm. never go 45 miles an hour, you've affected it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, oh, yeah. I fixed and, it. I think so, another example that people may have experienced, too, is like uh, sometimes you'll have an issue with your car that, you know, won't notice except at certain speeds 
And it's because at those speeds, there is some, you know, oscillation that's happening. If it's a tire imbalance or something in your drivetrain or the like, um, you know, I've, I once had a vehicle that was really good up to 60 and then like 60, 61, it was problematic. And then it would smooth out a bit after that. And it was just like this wobbling effect that would balance out beyond that, that speed. Um, all right. So then bringing things back down to earth, um, this is delightful, by the way, I, I could do this all day. Um, <laughs> and I, I hadn't quite appreciated, um, the, the basic R and D and like basic science and tool building that you were involved in. Uh, so, uh, that's its, its own topic. That's probably not one for, for a podcast of this particular <laughs> I, depth. Yeah. I, I will say on that. I, I think that's the part that I think never, you know, the marketing never really tells that side of the story because it's just too complicated. But yeah. if you're, if you're out there and you're, you're into this stuff, like that's the fun stuff. Like I love launching product and, and the product itself, but like that crazy journey to get there is usually like, that's where all the fun is happening. And, and, and typically, cause we're, you know, you're doing it wrong. Like 90% of the time you're like, you know, it's just can be months or years of like, we suck, you know, this doesn't work. We're getting our asses kicked. And then you, you know, if you persevere long enough, you will come out the other end and it's like, wow, we, we needed all that stuff. Like we needed to get our heads handed to us over and over again, or we never would have figured this stuff out. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoy that part of, um, of, of technology development or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Basic, like real basic R and D right down to building the tools that you need to do the R and D you want to do. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. And obviously like the compute power and the, the algorithms available and, you know, the switch to GPUs and all these other things that have um, changed since you were developing that make it such that today's models are both vastly more powerful and still yet trivial in complexity relative to the system itself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, well, let's dive into some more practical topics. So let's talk about like, all right, so a lot of our listeners were the gravel ride podcast, right? So thinking about that particular experience, um, what should, what are, what is worth, um, a gravel rider thinking about, uh, with relation to arrow? Uh, so things that can be done that will improve aerodynamics, but then not take away from the ride experience that a lot of riders are after, particularly when they're going to gravel. Mm. You know, they want to be comfortable, they want to have a good time, they want to have good control over a variety of different terrain and so on. So what are the arrow, um, and, and they don't want to look silly, so they might not be want, wanting to wear a skin suit or something like that. Not that it looks right. silly, but, but you know, a more, <laughs> a more serious enthusiast type of rider. Uh, what, are the, yeah. what are the things to think about? Oh gosh, that's question um i mean i think it really depends on on what the particular rider you know is after i mean are you are you racing do you want to go fast do you want to not get dropped mm -hmm. um you know do you need to carry stuff i mean i would say one of one of the big ones that i i just see and and you know we we make a ton of stuff in our company one of one of them being bags and you know, we're constantly accused of not making bags that are big enough. And so I've been on this mission for a couple of years of like, you know, what is in there? <laughs> like, really, mm -hmm. what's in there? And yeah. it is amazing to me just how much crap people are carrying. You know, you, you open mm -hmm. some of these monster seat bags. It's like, man, just because you bought it doesn't mean you need to fill it or use it. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, and, and absolutely, there's, there's like time and place for it. But, um, you know, I think some of the stuff like that, like, oh, okay, you've, you know, do you, 
you, you show up on the local gravel right here and, you know, people look like they're, they're almost like bike packing. Like mm -hmm. you just don't need, you know, it, it's a 40 mile loop, you know, that starts and ends at a bike shop. Like you, you don't need to bring a bike shop with well, you. Well, you need your um, coffee grinder, you need your, your mini stove and you need your <laughs> aero mug, press. Yeah. 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 Um, di yeah. Different and, experience. And, you know, Let, let's assume that we're I, going yeah, after like a performance but, rider who's um, like doing, doing, you know, a hundred, a uh, hundred mile events, then they're, they're training for yeah. it and they want to squeeze out more performance um, out of their existing setup, or they're considering, you know, what bike to get, what wheels to get, what, um, how to set it up, even considering bike fit yeah. or, you know, clip on aero bars and the like, what are the different things that people can do and yeah. what are the compromises and so on? Yeah. I mean, the, I, th I think certainly for gravel, the one clear cut, no compromise, better all around product that I can just always recommend is like a, an aero topped drop bar. I mean, it is amazing how much faster those things are than round section bars. I mean, any, really? you know, like pro vibe or the zip Fuka or whatever, you know, there's, I think every company makes it's one that but, big, you know, Oh, it's huge. I mean, it, it like wind tunnel speeds, it's a flat top bar can be like 28 to 30 Watts. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. Cause you're, you're replacing round covered in tape with something that's like pretty thin and shaped sure. well, or it can be massive. But, but the, I didn't, cause the cross-sectional areas is not that big compared to, you know, the rider and the, the rest of the bike and so yeah. on. So yeah, no, it's, it's well, and in gravel, it has the double effect of being, you know, shaped or ovalized in the direction that is also going to add compliance, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. comfort. And so you, you know, it's one of the few products I can really look at and go, okay, that thing is more arrow and more comfortable and has more surface area for your, right? I mean, better mm -hmm. all around. Um, that's a pretty easy one to, to go with. And, and similarly, you know, if you've, you've got the money, I mean, some of these, the, the integrated cockpit solutions that are out there are even faster, right? Because it's just even less stuff in the wind. Um, so let's I certainly, talk, you know, let's talk about that. Cause that's a big, like that. yeah. a big serviceability compromise and, and, you know, fit can be a concern with that too, because it's yeah. harder to swap components and so on. How much of that is coming from, um, simply not having the cables running into the down tube? Like, can you get the vast majority of those benefits with cables coming out from say underneath the bar, if they're tucked in on the bar or even coming out from the bar and dropping underneath the stem into the, the headset from there? Yeah. Yeah, my my rule of thumb for cables that I always use because it's so memorable is, um, you know, Greg LeMond versus Fignon in the 89 tour time mm -hmm. trial. Right? So 20, 20 kilometer time trial, um, the eight second gap there was more or less equivalent to Fignon's ponytail, right? As we, we love to yeah. joke about as cyclists, but was also the equivalent of one number two pencil length worth of cable housing. So and this is, and this is true, even if the cable housing is say in front of the head tube. So it's going to be disturbed by the head tube anyways, because you're getting the drag off of it. See what I mean? Like, so I, yeah. I'm trying to hone my understanding of the Yeah. I mean, here. yeah. So I, I would think a good way to put that would be that, yeah, putting, putting a slow crappy thing in front of a smooth thing, you're, you're still getting the drag of the slow crappy thing. Yep. Um, and you may actually be worsening the flow um, on the arrow thing. So yeah, Got absolutely. It. Still, you still have that effect. Um, you know, it, it, and it's hard to say, you know, in, in some cases, you know, it's, it's close enough or it's just in like the Goldilocks zone where it's a, a good distance away. We're like, Ooh, we can kind of make them disappear and they become, you know, 
uh, a, a, almost like the cable isn't there, but uh, that's not typically what we see. I and mean, typically, you know, you, you throw a bike in the wind tunnel with that and then you rip the cables out and you run it again. And you're all, every time it's like, Oh shit, big difference. And um, big so yeah, difference you've got a in terms of Watts, like a few Watts here, like the, so, you, so the handlebar is the big one. You said as much as 30 Watts at wind tunnel speeds, which granted gravel riders generally yeah, 30, are, are right. You know, right. Not We're not going quite doing 30 miles an hour, but you, yeah, you oh, we're out for a you, long you time. Can, yeah, but you are out there well. for a long time, so you don't have the speed, but yeah, you you definitely have the the, the potential time saving. So yeah, I, you know, hidden cables. I agree with you. Total pain in the ass, and you know, my God, I've spent a career working on world tour bikes and and you know, Ironman world champion bikes and things like that, and I I feel everybody's pain. You know, <laughs> people are always like, "Why is the industry doing this to us?" Like, like, well, because you want it and because it works. I mean, there's no like. It's a pain in the ass, but it works. Um, mm -hmm. So anywhere you can get rid of cables, get rid of cables. Um, you know, skin suit, I have to say, not everybody loves it, but man, it can be a huge, huge difference. Uh, I mean, you look at, you know, we were just out at Lead, uh, Leadville and Steamboat and, you know, all the top guys at Leadville are in skin suits now because it, mm -hmm. it makes that big of a difference. Um, aero bars can be huge and... You know, I think that's that's one I I think everybody's got their own sort of flavor that they like. But, you know, to me, like uh, for gravel, a stubby, a stubby bar that has functional pads mm -hmm. um, really can be worth it just because it's a different hand position. And it it's enough that it, it's effectively changing your kind of your whole torso position. And it, it it's just giving you a, a break all around. Right. It's different pressure points in your chamois for the time that you're using it. It's different you know, muscles in your back. Um, I think there's a good, and this is the, the extent of my physio physiological knowledge, but I, I think it's good to, to mix things up um, like that. I, I know a lot of people have kind of gone to these super narrow stubby, I don't even know what you call them, like semi-arrow bars. That yeah, no, mini arrow bars. Nowhere to put your, nowhere to rest your weight. And, and it just feels like everybody I know using those is constantly complaining about their wrists, you know? Um, and so, I, I, again, not a physical. But, but the change but I, in I would, the change in frontal area um, is that just an unmitigated benefit, or are there circumstances where you can reduce frontal area and you know have a negative result within the realm of you know changing a rider's position? Yeah. You know, a lot of it depends on your your baseline and and how good you are positionally. I think you know when you know we do a lot of position training with top athletes, and you know the 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 best place you can be that's not an aero bar is on the hoods with level forearms, mm -hmm. right? Like that's the, and, and ideally with and, relatively narrow and, bars. So and perpendicular upper arms as well, presumably. Yeah, or? give or take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's you're going to roughly get there depending on what the rest of the position looks like, and you know, obviously different body shapes and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, you think horizontal forearms are keeping that pretty much out of the wind. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they are also keeping it. It's just hard to hold that position, um, with in a way that you're also still opening your chest because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you're really trying to keep air from getting blocked up under the chest. And when you get a rider doing that, they just always kind of form, which I say always, I'm sure there's some counter examples out there, but they, they almost always, um, kind of adjust their back and their shoulders in a way that they kind of turtle their head a little bit, you know, the head comes down and you're just kind of now pushing more air up over the body and less down into it. Um, but from there, aero bars are 
almost always an improvement, right? Because you're narrowing the arms, um, you know, you're tightening things up even further, and now you're pushing more flow around the sides um, mm -hmm. and less into the chest and less into the hips. And there's some physiological things, you know, people, you know, wide hips, big hands, certain shoulders, certain back shapes, right? That's why we go to the tunnel. You know, it's it. 90% of the time you can look at somebody and go, oh, do this, this, and that. But man, 10% of the time it looks good and you run it and you're like, that's not good. <laughs> we yeah. have to find a different solution. Um, yeah. Um, so aer aero bars are huge. Another thing that we're starting to see is, uh, so BMC has their new Caius uh, line. They went with a super narrow uh, handlebar. So narrow at the hoods and then, hmm. you know, flare at the bottom. Uh, that seems like another thing that again is, well, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you're getting narrower, but on the other hand, you're also closing up the chest and maybe, you know, you're not getting as much oxygen, like air turnover or something, or like, are there issues where I, so I, I have been beating the narrow handlebar drum for 25 years. Um, you know, I am yet to actually see or be told by a real physiologist that that whole oxygen lung thing that we were all told as juniors is true. Is an issue. Um, yeah. I, I've just, yeah, we've just never, I mean, th that I know of, and I'm sure somebody out there will say, oh, here's a paper. But, you know, I, I know whenever we've studied it, looked at it, we've looked at it with athletes. I mean, it, look at what's happening at the World Tour. A lot of that is, you know, we've been yeah, beating that you're drum, starting to see uh, that for years, and people are doing it, and they're winning. Um, so, you And know, I wonder I, why I mean, aren't we seeing it with extreme flare as well, like a compound flare at least, so that you can still keep a, you know, a reasonably vertical lever position, because then you could go even narrower and have, um, still have the leverage for the descending and so on. Is that a tradition? Yeah, thing? I, yeah, I think some of it's that, I think some of it is just, you know, how far do you really want to push the UCI? Um, you oh, know, the you UCI cares like about this. the flare in your bars? Yeah. Oh, they will. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I think there are actually rules putting some limits on that. But yeah, at Got some it. point, it's going to look funny enough that you're going to draw attention and they're going to go, wait a minute. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, we've, we've seen that. I've got with, a 28 centimeter wide bar with yeah, huge flares yeah. on there. And I've got specially made levers that come off of it so that I yeah. can actually well, still touch and, them. From and the we drop. have seen it with, I, I can't remember the name of that bar, but I think it's out of Belgium or something, but it's got like, you know, uh, 180 millimeters of reach. Um, super narrow with long, and you can kind of lay your yes. forearms yeah, flat yeah, yeah. on I the top, seeing and that. they quickly were like, "Nope, that's out." Um, yeah. So I, you know, I think we just people are people are cautious. I think the the setups that are working now um, are very largely built around that three uh, T track bar. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, I, I know oh. you know it's they, got that kind of cool like wing, like gull wing shape to it, but it's super narrow arrow tops, um, relatively vertical, uh, drops, but, but that's a bar that the UCI has allowed for years. Right. And so I think mm -hmm. that as a, you know, when, when conversations are happening behind closed doors, that's the kind of thing of like, Ooh, well, this looks enough like that, that if they call us out, we, we go in there and be like, well, it looks a whole lot like this thing that you've allowed for 20 years. Um, you know, we, we have tons of those conversations. So, yeah. so I, you know, I, I think, but I, I will say, I, I think too, that's where, um, you know, a, a lot of people might look at the pro tour and things that they're writing, oh, well, if this worked, they'd use it. You know, I mean, that was what people told us when we were building zip in the early days. Well, if they worked, the pro pros would ride it and like, yeah, but they, they're, they don't know what they're, 
They don't believe I mean, in aerodynamics. You know, they the pros they were riding know. super skinny tires at super high pressures because they felt faster for a long time, even though, you know, at least, well, you know this better than, than I do. I mean, the data has been saying for yeah. quite some time that it's more efficient, never mind the accumulated fatigue that you get when your body's just being, you know, rattled at, you know, high frequency over the course of many hours. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, you know, that, I would say they're quite often the last, at least as a group to change, right? But you, you are seeing it now. I mean, the, you know, and, and, and you know, the team like Ineos hiring a guy, hiring Dan Bigham to come in and, it, you know, you, you are seeing some changes, right? Uh, that when teams are bringing full-time people like that in, um, we are going to start moving the needle there. But it's still a delicate dance with the with the UCI and, and all the sport governing bodies, right? Nobody, you, you hear it all the time. Nobody wants a repeat of the whole FINA. Uh, I don't follow swimming, but I was the technical uh, committee director for cycling at the World Federation of Sporting Good Industries. And uh, w at the time when FINA banned all of the super tight uh, swimming suits, and it was just a cluster, right? I mean, they just came out and said, nope, you've pushed it too far. We're done. And the, the whole industry was sideways with like, we've invested millions of dollars in this and the records mm -hmm. are breaking and people want it and on and on and on. And they just said, nope, you're done. And uh, I think it took them five years to under, undo all that damage. You know, I mean, you're seeing something parallel that. with running too, with uh, carbon fiber insoles and like what is, what is allowed in terms of the yep. amount of spring yep. that can be delivered and so on. Um, yeah, I, I see, I see them showing up on my local run and um, I might have right. to get a set just to keep up with the people I used to beat. To keep up. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally true. Uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's to some degree, that's the nature of the game. And that's why in, in significant part, that's why the gear is as good as it is right now. It's because, you know, people are looking for, as you would say, those marginal gains. Um, yeah. Um, I want to dive in. So uh, I want to put bring in a few uh, listener questions. Uh, so we posted in the ridership that you were going to be coming on. And so we had some folks asking questions there. Probably the biggest one that came up was um, talking about, you know, we've uh, Craig and I brought up the rule of 105 five percent on the podcast before but you know citing citing it it's not a deep understanding uh at all hmm. so tell us about how that emerged in how it applies um you know particularly in the gravel scene where you're looking at tires that are much bigger um and i mentioned uh earlier that you know specialized as a video for their revol wheels where they're running a, a 42 mil tire on I, I think a 35 or less external rim and they're claiming some aero benefit does that seem plausible is there's uh, given, given, given what you have seen in the wind tunnel and in your modeling. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's totally plausible. And it, I guess we'll, we'll start with rule of one. So rule of one Oh five was really, you know, I, I realized pretty early in my career that you had to come up with sort of rules of thumb for things or nobody would listen to you. <laughs> and you know, spent two years traveling Europe, trying to sell arrow cell world tour or pro tour at the time, uh, directors and team owners on aerodynamics. And, you know, I mean, literally got thrown out of every single team over there. Uh, I mean, it was just, we just got laughed out of the room. Just and, imagine and like really any came... of those team directors could have just adopted it at that time and had yeah, this huge yeah. advantage and didn't. 
Uh, that was, I, mean, I always said, you know, Uli at SRM, thank God, you know, he was developing his thing. And when I walked in to pitch Bjarne Reese, um, he was already on power meters. And so that that's mm -hmm. when it hit me, like really the moment of like, oh shit, the watt is the, is the currency here. The watt is the, the lingua franca, right? Because we talk yeah. grams of drag and this and that, and, you know, and, and a lot of them were still talking about calories and kilojoules and, yeah. um, BPM, you know, these things. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. And, yeah. and so, and so it was like, oh, wow. I have Watson. You have Watts. Okay. We're, you know, Rosetta Stone, baby. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. we're, yep. we're on. We can, let's, now, now it's an optimization so, you know, function. Right. Right. And, and now it's the, it's what's used. But I mean, that was truly the moment of, uh, you know, we, I left that meeting and we called SRM and bought a bunch of, um, a bunch of power meters. And then kind of that became the dog and pony show, right? Of like, no, no, you can see it in the power and we can, do, I mean, it was, uh, you know, this was 2000, 2001. So, I mean, this was like, very Nobody early days, shit, right? I mean, this was yeah. like, yeah, like, you know, like yeah, pre power tap. Still like, oh yeah, 160 BPM. And like, well, that's, um, which or, is or my favorite at the, <laughs> at the time when you'd get and the triathletes were great at this. Like, like I, I raced on your wheels and I, nothing changed. And you said like, oh, well, what, what was your race pacing strategy? Oh, 22.5. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, here's the thing. So <laughs> 22.5 is always 22.5. I bet you ran like a monster. Oh shit. I was like five minutes faster in the run. Like, yeah, cause you had all, the, all that energy left, but, but you know, it's kind of like note to self. If you ride at 22 and a half miles an hour, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Nothing else matters. You will only ever go 22.5 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> yeah, we just, it, it was just a different time. Right. And, and, uh, so I had been in 2001 was the for 2000. Yeah, 2000 was the first time I was invited to the tunnel with uh, Lance Armstrong and, and Johan Bernil and that whole group. And, um, you know, obviously they were on zip disks, which Trek was buying, um, but Head was their wheel sponsor other officially. And so um, they had that Head three-spoke wheel. And, and I noticed in the tunnel, the bike always had this like Continental TT, 19 millimeter Continental TT tire on it. And, you know, we tested that wheel in the tunnel and it just, was always just fine. But, you know, the one we had that we tested was our baseline tire at the time was a Corsa CX-21, right? I mean, like the, probably the most race tire in the history of ever. Um, you know, that thing had like a 30-year dominance at the top of the, of the Pro Peloton. And uh, like, wow, that wheel looks amazing with that tire, but it's pretty average whenever we tested. And so really fell down this rabbit hole of like, what are the tires doing? And, um Similar time, uh, Craig Willett, who had the Bike Tech Review, one of the first like online blogs of the late '90s um, about bike technology. He had he had gone and done a wind tunnel test of disc wheels, and he borrowed a zip disc that had a 23 millimeter tire on it that was pretty pretty well used, and the wheel just looked terrible. And so, you know, we were trying to figure that out and combat, you know, oh, the a disc cover is way faster than a real disc, and like, yeah, but that had a 19 millimeter tire. And so got Andy to let me go to the tunnel and just look at rim tire interaction. And we just spent like a whole week doing just that. And what we came out of there with was this realization that, and it makes sense um, when you just diagram it out. I've got a YouTube video on this that people can look up rule 105, but um, 
if you're going to keep flow attachment on the leeward side, right? So the, you've got the windward side, like the side the wind is coming from, and then the leeward is, you know, the opposite. So this is assuming you're that gonna keep, it's coming at an angle. There's some yaw involved. At an angle, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's almost always coming at some bit of angle, right? Yeah. It's almost never purely straight on. So, so we had to really start thinking in terms of, um, oh, okay. There's always some crosswind. I think that hadn't fully been appreciated. Um, but then, you know, if you wanted leeward side attachment, you, the rim couldn't be in the shadow of the tire because the air separates pretty early off the tire. Yeah. And okay. so you can just visually look at it and see, oh, wow, it, you know, if, if they're equal at two degrees of yaw, the rim is shadowed, right? And so everywhere beyond that, there's your attachment is hopeless. But if the rim is wider, um, especially if the rim is wider up at the tire, we, we could maybe keep that flow attachment quite high. And so as a result, you know, the, the rims of that era, the sort of V shaped, U shaped rims, um, people were doing in the nineties, early two thousands, um, became toroidal and hybrid toroidal and, and some of these other variants that we ended up developing, but they started getting wider and, uh, you went from, you know, the, the flow attachment would break off at between two and a half and five degrees. And all of a sudden, I mean, we could keep flow attached at 12 and a half, maybe, you know, I think when we did the 808 in, uh, 2003, 2004, um, that had flow attachment at like 17 and a half degrees. I mean, that was just not in, ever been it, seen in a, before, in, in a wind tunnel, right? So the bike isn't moving relative to tunnel, the flow. Yeah. So you're controlling that angle. Um, right. Yeah. Right. So 17 and a half degrees. Um, which yeah, is which was nuts, at, right? I mean, it at was thirty just, miles uh, an hour, I mean, that's almost a sidewind. <laughs> like, a, right. yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. perpendicular. You, yeah, yeah. You, you do the math there, and you realize that doesn't happen very often. But yeah, but what that means is, is you know, the percentage of time that you're riding in conditions where the flow is attached is extremely high. You know, you so, think of those early V-shaped rims. You maybe had flow attachment down in the five to ten percent of riding time. And by the time we get to 808 and toroid and, and some of the shapes we have now, you probably have flow attachment in the 90%, 85 plus percent uh, of ride time. I mean, it's just a, a much improved experience. And then where, presumably there, there are different parts of the rim where uh, that attachment is more, more relevant. Like the top of the rim is traveling at twice the speed of the bike, right? So it's going forward mm. and, and, you know, the bottom is stationary. And so like, can you tell, talk about like where where most of the benefits are coming from in terms of wear on the wheel and then in terms of like the depth versus the width and, and things like that. Yeah. So for, for pure drag, you're sort of like uh, three o'clock, nine o'clock positions are really key because that's where your section is shortest relative to flow. Um, and that's also where from a handling perspective, your, uh, your lever arm, so to speak, that the wind has against you is the longest, right? So hmm. that's where, you know, if the, you know, you think of the wind trying to like torque the bars out of your hand. Well, you know, that's where he's got the largest torque wrench. Um, you know, yeah. you get higher in the wheel, it's shorter. Um, but then as you get higher in the wheel, now you're, you know, you, you, it I mean, is you should be able to see, force, right? Well, and you should be able to keep, am I right? That you should be able to keep flow. If you have a deep section wheel, keep flow attached over a very long distance because you have essentially a continuous fore aft surface yeah. or as deep as that deep section rim allows. So the deeper the rim. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 As you slice a wheel and you keep coming up, you see, you know, you go from like, you know, it's a cross-section, cross-sectional shape at three. And now that cross-section is getting deeper and deeper and deeper and more elongated. Um, and, and that's why you, you typically, um, even 
even bad rim shapes tend to not be that bad as you get higher, right? Because the tires mm -hmm. become a, a essentially a sharper uh, leading edge and, you know, things tend to, you know, your, your section over the, which the flow is, is, you know, in some cases three, four times as long. Yep. Um, yep. And so that's where, you, you know, you, but as you improve that sort of three and six area, you also, you do end up improving things up there as well. And then of course you get into problems of, you know, like that first 808 was 27 millimeters wide and designed to be run with 21 millimeter tires, but in an era where the bike makers were obsessed with narrow. And so yeah. now you all of a sudden have a problem of like, you're damming up airflow between the rim and the fork blade because the fork, you know, well, that's, Cervelo that's, insisted on having their fork blades super squished together. And because now it looks you have cool. other, you know, <laughs> yeah. tight tolerances. And now no one can run a bigger tire on those old bikes. I actually want to ask you yeah. about the, um, the Lotus, um, bike, the, uh, the hope HB dot T Lotus track bike. Yep. Um, so this is a really radical bike. I'll try to remember to put a link to it in the, um, in the show notes, but it, you know, it seems like the core, the core thing that they've gone after here is pushing those fork blades as far away from the wheel as possible and doing the same thing with the chain, uh, the seat stays. Um, yeah. so talk about that. Like why, why don't you see that on road bikes? Why don't you see like a, a super wide fork with a skinny tire yeah. in the middle? So, so it's funny, you know, we, we, we actually originally did the late nineties at zip. We, we made a fork that had a hundred millimeter wide crown and vertical legs. Um, and it was actually welded by a local guy here out of, um, A-arm strut from an IndyCar. And, uh, we put that thing in the tunnel and realized like, holy crap, this is really fast. And, and that's where we also, it, it's kind of a true story around why zip abandoned the three spoke, three spoke wheel only in the tunnel can be pretty quick. Three spoke in a fork was nowhere ever nearly as fast. Um, and, oh, and because the interaction with the fork blades. Right. And, and that's, you know, what I always tell people, huh. the, the easiest way to think of this is the sound. Oh, right. Yeah. Nobody, woof, 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 woof. you know, you're getting these right. pressure buildups and releases each time the, the, that's big exactly. spoke goes past the fork. Ah, okay. And then the yeah. further so away like you stereo, move the fork blades. Yeah, it yeah. gets quiet. And so that's, we actually built it to try to understand that. And that's when we, we put it on the zip 3001. And I mean, remember running that, we're just like, holy shit, that's the fastest bike we've ever tested. That, that, it's funny. The guys at zip still take that bike. Um, back and, and use it as a benchmark to test. And it's, I mean, it, it's to this day as fast as almost anything out there, um, even though it's 25 years old now or whatever. Um, and, and do you have to be but, a certain yeah, that, distance that away or is it, is it, does it get exponentially it, it better as better. you get further away? Oh, it, well, actually, no, it gets the biggest benefit should no. be. In, is immediate. Yeah. No, yeah. You, you definitely lose, you it's definitely diminishing returns. And that's why, you know, at a hundred millimeters, you're fine. Now at a hundred millimeter, you know, that boxy shape, there's some real handling um, issues to solve, right? I mean, the fork wants to kind of like parallelogram. Um, sure. Yeah. Side loaded. And so, you know, the forks are going to end up being heavier and there's more service area and all that stuff. Now what the, the British team guys and hope did was they took it one step further and said, well, if we're already going to come out here, and try to build that gap in. Let's push it out even further to try to put it in line with the rider's legs mm -hmm. in, in the hope that, um, ah. you know, we talked earlier about, you know, it, it, it's not always very doing much for you to put a crappy thing in front of a fast thing, but it can help you to put a fast thing in front of a crappy thing. Right. And so mm -hmm. by putting a, a, a very beautiful airfoil out directly in front of the rider's legs, they're able to control the, the air downstream condition hitting the leg. 
And so now you have the ability to like, do you want to turn it most likely outboard? Um, or do you want to just disrupt it in a way that you're reducing the pressure on the front of the leg? Um, you know, I, I would think of that almost like, you know, we look at uh, diving competitions, right? They always have that like little spray of water that's like breaking the surface tension on the water so that mm -hmm. divers don't die when they hit it. You know, and you can kind of do that aerodynamically, right? With upstream and downstream effects, you know, you can kind of um, put a different type of flow onto something that you know is less arrow, right? So we might like put a little huh. flow energy in there. Um, so you're basically clean, cleaning it up. You're, you're essentially cleaning up the you, airflow or, or like conditioning the airflow you in may some actually, way before it hits the yeah, legs. Yeah, you, you may actually be dirtying it a little bit, yeah, before it, it hits the legs. Hmm. Super interesting. So I, 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 I wasn't involved in that project, so I can't speak for exactly what they were up to. But yeah, I would, I would be interested to see. And then, and then they did the same thing in the, the um, seat stays. And, and there yep. you would want to, um, you know, you would actually want to be recapturing and then now cleaning that flow, right. To leave it as smooth as possible. So, you sure. know, they may yeah. in a sense be creating sort of a, this um, interesting, like little interstitial area between two airfoils where it, you have a slightly more optimized condition for this, this mess that is the spinning leg, right? Especially in track where those, the legs are huge. Mm -hmm. um, and so know, it's an, it's a unique problem to solve because it's really, it's not obvious, right? The, the obvious answer may be completely the opposite of what you actually want to do. Well, and let's bring this down to a more practical application of this concept. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to see bikes um, for mainstream audiences that are pushing the fork blades and the seat stays, you know, that far out, that probably doesn't make sense. But pushing them further out relative to the wheel, I'm surprised we don't see that. Like the the structural issues, um, I mean, with with advanced composites, you can solve that with relatively low weight. 3T has their, you know, has a, a fork that fits a 2.4 inch gravel tire. Yeah, and so that's, I mean, and it has a really, you know, uh, it has a small crown. It's not this big beefy thing, and it's quite lightweight. So presumably structurally, you could do it. So I wonder why you don't see it with road bikes. I mean, I think you've you've certainly seen the move in that direction over the last, I'd call it ten plus years, right? I mean, Trek Trek was really the first one to go there because they knew they had an issue with that three spoke wheel that Lance was riding. I mean, you look at the, you know, the Trek TT bikes of the two thousands had way wider fork crowns and and rear stays than anyone else had, right? Because they they knew what wheel they were working with. Um, you know, you've seen some of this. Uh, in road, I would say Trek is still one of the, the big ones, but um, or probably one of the, the class leaders on this. But also, you've just seen other things happening, right? The tires then got bigger, which made the rims need to get bigger. Um, and then, of course, everything had to get taller for clearances. And so, you know, now I think they're, we're, we're much more threading the needle for, like, how can we turn this race bike into a customer bike and vice versa without having to make you know, a million custom molds and custom sizes. And because, because the, you know, the, the kind of cool trickle down reality of, of our sport and what we're doing is that, you know, the, the bike that you buy off the shelf really does come from the same mold that the pro bikes come from. Cause that's so expensive to make those molds that, you know, <laughs> nobody's getting custom. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, I mean, there a lot of really good stuff has happened, but you do put yourself in some interesting um, pickles, so to speak, right. Where, Oh, well, Technically, this may be the right answer, but will the customer, you know, accept it? Will they understand it? Do we have the money to market it? 
you know, a lot of the, the a lot of these, especially more out there technologies that are counterintuitive, um, they can take a fortune to market to get people to change their minds. And if and if you don't have that money, um, you know, then that product becomes a flop, and then that feature that made it flop becomes the thing that doesn't work and keeps you from selling bikes. And, you know, and it'll take 20 years to repair that cycle. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there, there's a lot of complexity uh, behind these things that not everybody thinks about or good because they don't have to. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, and I spent some time at, um, at one of the big companies and so got to see just how deep that complexity can be and, and how, uh, and how it truly is the case that we are in a sport where you can ride something that um, is very much trickled down and it's not entirely BS. Though, though, frankly, also, you see lots of uh, things that are added for the purposes of marketing that kind of come and go. You know, magic elastomers that get built yeah. into a frame and, you know, they tell some sort of resonance damping <laughs> story. Uh, I won't name names, Zertz, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've we've had our share of those. And, and I think you know too, I mean it really the the industry continues I I enjoy I mean it it continues to be a a nice mix of you know, I mean you've got some companies that are like almost just pure marketing companies, right? And you've got some other companies sure. that are almost pure technology development companies and and a little bit of everything in between and and you know, the the pendulum swings, right? I mean it it is nice to see that the you know, we certainly lived it with um with CSC, you know, that, that you had, you know, specialized and Cannondale and Trek were dominating. And then our scrappy little, you know, group of misfit toys like showed up with CSC and all this aero stuff. And all of a sudden we're like punching way above, above our weight. Right. I mean, that was a true, uh, money ball situation when you look at it historically. Right. I mean, this, this team that had an entire team budget of less than Lance Armstrong's salary, um, became the UCI world number one team. And, and we did it not just through the marginal gains, but those marginal improvements of, you know, if you can get every rider to finish on average four places higher than they would have finished, right? I mean, you're mm-hmm. just like, you're just working every last little angle. Um, but all of those aggregate into something, you know, I remember a couple of years in, we're like, wow, we're going to be the a top three team this year. Like, that's crazy. You know, who's your bike sponsor top at the two time? <laughs> Cervelo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna. So that, I was just gonna say, like, that you was, know, I'm uh, thinking like Gerard and and Phil White, uh, Gerard Brumman and, yeah, and Phil yeah. White, um, and yeah. I mean, they just had. So I didn't realize that that, that you guys all collaborated. I hadn't oh, drawn yeah, that we, connection. So a little we, bit before my time. Once we once we got Bjarna interested in the wheels, he you know the the uh, Shimano Campy at the time Stram wasn't a player yet. Um, you had to take full Grupos. And Mm -hmm. it, which meant, you know, included like wheels and shoes and all this stuff. And so we knew if we were going to break in, we had to put, like I said, I mean, truly we, we called ourselves the Island of Misfit Toys. Um, And so we went and got Phil and Gerard and we got Claudio at FSA and we got SRAM to come in as like a a cassette and chain sponsor. And, you know, FSA was cranks. I'm trying to remember. I think we were buying the Durace shifters, but yeah, I mean, that whole thing was put together. I, I always love, I tell the story. First time I met Phil and Gerard, they were, they were, they were in this, um, hotel at Las Vegas for the interbike show called the Tama Shanter, which was like one of the sleaziest, worst places on the strip. And, and we, we stayed at this horrible place, uh, off strip. So it was maybe even worse, 
But, those places um, tend to be really I, cheap because they want to get you in to oh, just, pull their their one on uh, bandits. I've I've, oh I've done that before. It's just going terrible. To yeah, interbikes back in the day. And it's, yeah, but uh, but but so I I hear about them through one of the the team mechanics. Like, oh, you you need to meet these guys. You know, they're they're also looking to break in. And um, Andy and I go over there, and there's just this smell, you know, of like lacquer. Like, are they people huffing paint? You know, what are they? And it's Phil and Gerard are painting the bikes for the show in the parking lot, and they're hanging them to dry in the shower <laughs> of the room. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. And, like, and, of course, we met them, and within five minutes, we're like, okay, you guys are like us. Like, let's do this. And so, yeah, over the next – that was probably, God, 2000, 99, 2000. But, uh, but yeah, so when, when we had this opportunity to break in it, it with CSC, it was like, okay, let's, like, let's get the band together, you know. And, man, we just got all these crazy – folks together and everybody like if you wanted to come in it had to be you, you had to have the data you know it, you didn't have to have money but you had to have the product and um you know that the the structural advantage that that team had for the first really four years i mean was was huge you know it was like, like they were just you know we, we would joke with them like you know you're you're basically riding a time trial bike compared to what everyone else is riding. And, you know, in time they believed it and it really did. But what we said at the beginning of the show, it became the placebo. That was also the real thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and then you would have team, I mean, I, I think where it got really excited, you, you would have riders come in from other teams and see some of like the power numbers and the, you know, cause we were there all the time, chunk testing and kind of doing that whole thing. And, and then, of course, the word spreads, right? And now the other writers know what those guys are doing. And so it, that becomes like, well, shit, that's not fair. What, you know, those guys have these aero bikes and these aero wheels. And, you know, like they started, I remember like Speedplay when they, you know, Richard brought the aero pedal and, you know, there were writers and other teams were just like, oh, fuck. you know, <laughs> it was just like, like, oh, wow, we've really got them now. You know, not, not only is it, is it a placebo for our writers, but <laughs> it's totally working against all the other teams. Um, you know, and, and that whole thing, we did that for, God, it was a great time. We did. And then we did Cervelo test team with Cervelo and one of the founding members there. Yeah. We, it was a hell of a, hell of a good time. Oh man. I've and changed I mean, the sport. We really, yeah, yeah, totally definitely. Changed the sport. Definitely. And yeah. not just this sport. I mean, Gerard, what he's done with, um, open and I, I think he's co-owner of yep. 3T now, um, the open up, yep. I think defined the kind of the one bike what I describe as the one bike segment. It was a bike that could, you could literally have a single bike that yep. does everything. The geometry allowed for that. And you had the tire clearance and everything else. You had that drop chain stay. And we take all these things for granted now, but he was innovating, you know, as, as soon as he left Cervelo, um, continued on that path. Um, but yeah, I, I remember um, salivating over those bikes. And uh, now, yeah, you know, was... every, every company has an aero bike and even their non-aero bikes have a lot of aero considerations built into them. You know, the tarmac being a prime example where they kind of merged it oh, with the yeah. bench. I, I think that's, to me, that's the most exciting thing happening, right? Is I think we are going to kind of converge on, uh, it's a bit of a right answer, <laughs> you know, that, that you're going to have the, the light bike is going to be also a very aero bike. And, you know, we're already at a point where we're playing I mean, the new And hopefully is, comfortable is, too, in, which is another and, thing but, that you can get there. some... I mean, yeah. 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 And I, you know, we, we worked with, uh, when, when Matt Heyman won Roubaix, you know, that was, we had done a bunch of work with, with the team around what bike to ride there and what wheels and tires and pressures. And that was the, really the first time I'd ever seen that Scott 
was the foil or whatever their their aero bike was it was equivalent in comfort to their lightweight climbing bike and you know the riders were kind of on the fence of like oh that's the aero bike the climbing bike is more comfortable like no guys it's not like <laughs> you have a very unique advantage here that your aero bike is as comfortable as the climbing bike so you ride the aero bike and and you know if if you don't know you don't you don't know but the companies are figuring that stuff out and man what a what a difference right when you can be comfortable and go faster that's pretty awesome well and that's a very natural segue into in a We'll, we'll probably time limit this because we're already pushing well over an hour here. Maybe we'll have to have you back on at some point because uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, but tire pressure, like I, you know, I'm of the opinion that, you know, the transition to wider, wider rims and wider tubeless tires and lower air pressures and so on is one of the single biggest advancements uh, in cycling, at least for the recreational slash enthusiast rider that's come around. Like the whole gravel segment is essentially enabled by, uh, disc brakes and tubeless tires, if you think about it, because yep. you can ride that terrain um, on, you know, what used to be, well, actually, I mean, today's gravel bikes are essentially better versions of, you know, the original cross-country bikes. Um, yeah, but... <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think those are the two really most important advancements um, for people riding today, you know, with arrow probably in third. Yeah. The, the tire pressure thing, you know, I think is really the, again, it's kind of like the, the arrow top road bar. I mean, it's one of those places where you really can't have it all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you can be faster and more comfortable, comfortable and have better grip and be less likely to puncture yep. if you just get your tire pressure right. Um, and, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to solve. I mean, we do hundreds per year, probably hundreds of optimizations for, for teams and athletes. And, uh, you talk about the, the Silco tire pressure calculator, you know, it yeah, is, yeah. how's that, how does that work? How that, did you, is that a, a simple or yeah, a very so, complex equation? Um, so, so it, it, it's both. So we, a lot of what we do, particularly around like Roubaix and some of these key events and the Olympics and the world championships and the tours, um, people will have us come in and say, Hey, you know, here's, here's my rider his weight distribution, here's the, the course, um, what's the optimal pressure? And, and, you know, tire pressure is a really hard one in that, you know, so much of, of what we're after in cycling are these like maximize, minimize variables, right? You know, I want max stiffness and minimum weight. And with tire pressure, it's like, I want just exactly the perfect one that's optimized somewhere in the middle. You're like, well, what is that number? Uh, we don't know. Um, and so that's where, you know, that's hard, right? Our, our brains love maximize and minimize. That's why we have, you know, that's why we still have so many weight weenies. Like well, it's just fun. And it's, and it's um, easy to market as well. You can tell something it's, easy it's to lighter market. and they can but, pick it up, like pick up my bike at the coffee shop. See how light it is. Isn't that amazing? And, right. and, you know, but, sell but it to it them is, for 12 grand. It's also, but it's also fun. I mean, you buy that stem that's 40 grams lighter and you take ah. your old one off and you weigh <laughs> them. And you're like, yeah, it's for, you know, like you, you know, you, you, you got what you paid for, right? And and with these optimized the placebo, problems, it's placebo really hard. Effect. Like, yeah, totally. But but with these optimized ones, it's hard. Like, well, I don't know. That one doesn't feel faster. It feels different. It's uh, you know, like how do I see it in the data? Well, we have methods. Uh, the the Chung method is the, the one that we use with uh, some other various technologies. But you know, we can go out and and have you ride laps and tell you what the optimal tire pressure is for you on that course, right? At your weight with your tire. 
Um, Using it, it accelerometers and things like this to look at time. vertical deflection and, and things like this. We, so we we actually have a whole bunch of cool things that we use, but all you really need, um, and you you can do this at home. And if you look up the Chung method by Robert Chung, it's also called virtual elevation. All you really need is a power meter and a GPS enabled um, computer that you can get your data out of. And, and you know, Robert, who's a, a dear friend of mine and one of the smartest humans I've ever come across, you know, he's a demographer at Berkeley and uh, just a brilliant guy. And, but he says it best, you know, the thing, you know, engineers were taught to like use ever, find ways to get ever cleaner data. And demographers are always stuck with crap data. Mm -hmm. And so they developed all these other tools to work with bad data. And he had had this idea, I think watching one of the world championship events of like, well, if I could just, you know, if I could just fix something, um, if I could just like, fix a couple variables, I, I could try to calculate um, CDA and CRR uh, if I had the power files. And define the terms the, real quick. Uh, just, oh, so yeah. CDA is, is like your coefficient of drag times your area. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, a, a CD is a non-dimensional coefficient. Engineers love non-dimensional coefficients because we hate units. Um, and so we use CD uh, that, you know, like a, a sphere always has the CD of a sphere, no matter how big it is. Mm -hmm. And so you so can scale, say, scale invariance, uh, essentially to be a, exactly. Yeah. And so then the A is the area. And so that's, mm -hmm. you know, times. And a. that's the scale. So it, it's just a way that we talk to each other because it's simpler. Um, and, and, we're well, and it's, and it's I mean, it just really is true. Like it's teasing it, out the thing that's most relevant to it, it. What matters is, is, yeah. uh, yeah. It, if it's scale invariant, if it's a scale invariant effect, then you'd only need the, yeah, that makes sense. So CDA and so, what was the other one, the other term? CRR, which is coefficient of rolling resistance. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the same thing that that's, that's a true non-dimensional and it's just a coefficient. The problem with CRR is it's got so many, it's like point when, when we, people talk about it, they're always like, it's point zero 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 like people's eyes roll back. Um, and, and it also makes them seem like very small numbers, but when you work them in the math, they, it can turn out to be a pretty big number. Um, but anyway, so Ro Robert has this idea of how he can find solve for these two um, in a situation that he otherwise knows nothing about. And he, from like Strava data on the web, realizes he can kind of do it. And so he gets with some other smart people and ultimately they, they develop um, the, the calculations here. And there, there's a free online tool called Golden Cheetah that you can mm -hmm. use to solve um, to solve for it. And uh, yeah, and so we, we've used that for, God, 10 plus years. And um, we do a ton of these for, for teams and riders and athletes. And, and the tools have changed, but, you know, the numbers kind of stay the same. I mean, we're, you know, we're doing it now on laptops and, and phones and, and the power meters are much more accurate. But, um, you know, the, the outcome outputs haven't changed all that much. And so it hit me a couple of years ago that like, wow, we've, you know, you, you hear Google and Amazon, these people talk about how, like how valuable the data is like, wow, I think we're sitting on something really valuable, which is that we've got 4,000 real world tire optimizations where we know the tire width, the rider weight, the rider weight distribution, mm -hmm. the surface roughness and the pressure that was the fastest. Right. And so, you know, you, when you think of a, the graph of the rolling coefficient of rolling resistance for a tire, 
the challenge we've had for the last 30 years was everybody's mental model of, of what that graph would look like comes from lab testing. And, you know, you put a tire on a smooth steel roller and you get this like dropping uh, line that asymptotically approaches some number as the pressure gets higher, right? And so mm -hmm. you just look at that and go, well, higher pressure is faster, done. What we've learned in the real world, once we had the techniques to do it, is that that curve shape is actually something like a V. You know, at some pressure, that line kicks up again and the resistance starts to get up. And that's because you're now vibrating and, and lifting the bike and the rider system, um, you know, up and down and shaking them to deal with the roughness mm -hmm. of the, as the tire gets harder. Um, and so what our data had was thousand, literally like over 4,000 optimizations where we had solved for that break point, right? The bottom of the V, the peak minimum rolling resistance mm -hmm. for a weight and a tire size and a surface roughness. Um, and so I thought, oh, wow, I, I bet we could put this together and start to kind of draw lines of correlation, like, sure. you know, rider of this weight across surfaces, across tire widths. And, and so what our calculator does is it, in actually a very simplistic way, it puts all that together and then draws, um, really lines in between them, right? So we're, we're essentially making curves to fit, you know, a rider of your weight has a curve that looks like this on this tire. And on this tire, it looks like this. And that's all coming from real data, but it's all very simplistically done uh, when you really get in there and look at it. But we're able to interpolate the missing data points. Um, the, the other thing that's fun with, with our calculator is like, you know, if you know Peter Sagan's weight on the day that he won his Roubaix and his measured tire width, and you plug that in there, you'll get the, you'll get the air pressure that he rode. Um, cause, cause that's also how it works. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there's some, there's some fun gems in there. If you, if you know the, the right numbers to key in, you, you can get to some really cool little, uh, little things, but, but yeah, we're, we're essentially just saying, Hey, this, this is what's proven to be fastest in the real world. And so we're just going to give it to you in a way that, you know, it's takes 15 seconds to calculate your <laughs> version of it or. or and this is available at silka.cc for anyone listening. We'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Um, we actually link to your calculator um, on the uh, in our FAQ for uh, Logos components, uh, just because it's so well oh, done. Cool. And um, just Thank to you. bring this, and we'll we'll close up with this. But um, so if you're using that calculator, um, I want to kind of tease out how to apply it. So one way to apply it would be just take the numbers and put them in. And I think that that probably works really well for a more controlled environment like road. Um, but say gravel, you have a lot more variation, which you've taken into account in your calculator, but the rider's technical ability plays substantially into the off-road experience. And even equipment choices like a, a dropper post that allows you to have you know, different weight just to, to shift your weight distribution to have, um, you know, more travel between your body and the bike. So using your arms and legs as suspension. And, you know, if you ride loose versus riding tight, all of these are going to come into play. And so, you know, it, you can start with these, I guess, my, my perspective, and I'm curious, yours on this is particularly for more technical gravel situations, use it as a starting point, but then find the one that makes you feel most confident for the terrain that you're hmm. riding and then maybe bias, you know, you might go slightly lower to get more traction or cush or whatever it is you're after, you know, pushing, you know, obviously with the limit of not wanting to bang your rims against rocks. Uh, but you know, there's a certain technical competency that's required, uh, 
uh, technical elements and riding style elements that's um seems I, I don't know it seems to me more relevant in gravel though though you tell me uh you you understand this a lot better oh i, I think there's a, a a ton of truth to that i you know i think the the couple the couple of blind spots we know exist in the calculator the the biggest one is that you know the, these data points come from i mean really the fittest athletes in the world yeah. Yep, and and they're in most cases riding like the fastest, most supple tires. Yeah, um, and so a couple of things that we know, you know, that the when you hit the break point, it's because the energy lost to the hysteresis, right, or the um, the inefficiencies of shaking the rider have become greater than the casing losses uh, of deflecting the tire. Well, you know, the the fittest athletes in the world at two and a half percent body fat, they're a lot lower hysteresis than me. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Yep. So, so if you're, if you were less than the fittest athlete in the world, you were a higher <laughs> hysteresis individual. Some of us um, jiggle more <laughs> than, yeah, some of us jiggle more. Um, and, and so that, that likely will shift your optimal pressure potentially downward, right? As your mm -hmm. body fat goes up, that, that optimal pressure probably drops. Um, you know, as tires become less supple, um, they have their own added hysteresis, which causes a, a dynamic stiffness problem in high frequency vibration. And we could do a whole episode on this. It's pretty fascinating uh, that I know, I think we were the first to really discover and try to like explain it and quantify it. But, um, you know, static stiffness, like you just push on a tire at a pressure, they all look the same, mm -hmm. but dynamic stiffness, like stiffness under high frequency vibration. Oh, you almost get like a um, damping effect. You know, yeah. With a stiffer sidewall. So the spring, totally, the yeah, spring the, can't the, respond the way, as quickly. Exactly. Yeah. The, we, we describe it as being a lot like, um, packing a suspension fork yeah. on a washboard. Yeah. Um, or, you know, my favorite analogy to say like, you know, you, you see the, um, uh, memory foam mattress commercial where they press the hand in and then they remove the hand and mm -hmm. the handprint stays, you know, that's hysteresis. Well, think of that now as like a memory foam punching bag. Like if you just keep punching that same spot, yeah, it's just it going to pack itself down into like a rigid, pl it's not even foam. Oh, it hadn't occurred to me that and, that would and, be relevant in a, like it'd be a significant, a sufficiently large effect in a tire in order to be relevant though. I guess you're dealing with super high frequency totally, vibration. Yeah. So yeah. And it's, it's actually one of the reasons that, that people can feel crappy tires. Yeah. I mean, Cause you think like in the lab, you know, 20 years ago, you would inflate a tire, push on it with a, an anvil and go like, well, it has the same stiffness as, you know, so we used to assign casing stiffnesses like, oh, well, that has a 0.2 PSI casing stiffness. There's no way you can feel that. Well, you draw the hysteresis curve and then you look at the time response and this is a podcast, so I'm using my hands because we're on video. But, you know, if you've got a 45 degree slope in your outbound, uh, you know, your compression pathway and then your hysteresis drops like this, well, over certain time frequencies, you're... Um, your stiffness becomes like a line that's connecting the two, the bottom. And so it can become damn near vertical. Um, again, you gotta, I wonder if this must send be... you to a blog post to, uh, to understand that, but is it, this why it, people stuck yeah, with tubular for so behavior long? can be. No, that was more tradition and pressure, but I, I think it's, um, okay. It, it's, it's one of the, it, it ultimately becomes one of the reasons that people stuck with high pressures for so long. Um, is that they equate those high frequency vibrations with speed. Yeah. Yeah. That's not true. I, I made that mistake. Um, and that, and that also makes you 
not feel that crappy tires are slow because they feel fast because they have a lot of high frequency vibration, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, you think of like trying to convert people from, you know, poor tires to, to fast tires, they, they might say, well, it, it doesn't feel fast and it, it, it's too comfortable or it's too, you know, it's like, well, well, it's just not beating the crap out of you because it's a, a better tire. But you know, we now have the tools that you can see that that's quicker, but, th but that's another, um, and we've, we've now added a, a compensating factor for that in our calculator. But, you know, if you're training on, you know, armadillos, um, <laughs> you need a, you need a different optimal pressure than if you're out on your GP 5000s, you know, it's just because of, again, the static stiffness may look similar, but the dynamic stiffness can be quite different. Yeah. And of all the things that you can yeah, do so to those, your bike, like tires and like tubeless yeah. tires, and you know, you can't change your rims without changing your wheels. So tubeless tires being in, but the more supple casing and will, uh, of all the things that you could do to improve your ride experience, that's probably highest on the list. If I had to guess bike fit being oh, the other one. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could go all day. This has been absolutely delightful. Maybe if you're interested, have you on again in the future to dive in, uh, on some of the questions that emerged from this conversation. I know that we had a number of listeners who had posted some questions that we didn't quite get to. Hopefully we covered things sufficiently here, but Josh, this was a hell of a lot of fun. Really appreciate you joining and uh, let's keep in touch. Awesome. Really enjoyed it. And yeah, let's do it again. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. Big thanks for Randall for taking the hosting duties and having that great conversation with Josh. I hope you enjoyed it and you will check out everything he and the team are doing over at Silka. Big thanks to Logos Components for sponsoring this week's episode. We could not continue to do what we do without support from companies like Logos. If you're interested in connecting with me, I encourage you to join the ridership. That's www.theridership.com. It's a free global cycling community where you can connect with gravel cyclists from all around the world. If you're able to support the podcast financially, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. Or if you want to just do something that's a solid for me, leave me a rating or review. It's hugely important for our discoverability that we get new reviews in there. And I hope you're enjoying everything that we do and put out there each week. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.